live here from the red carpet. Joan Rivers here, and don't feel bad if you recognize the name but not the face. I just got this one two weeks ago. <laughs> okay, Andrea, I am so legitimately excited to ask you this question. Like, don't worry, I'm not proposing. Of all of the 1990s red carpet dresses, which for you was the biggest disaster? 1990 at the Academy Awards, mm-hmm. Kim Basinger <laughs> in a white satin yep. wedding dress sort of ball gown. Mm, I know exactly. With a very beautiful, beautiful woman. I wish I could say the same thing about her dress. Oh my God, it was so bad. So good. Well, today on People in the 90s, we're talking about September 18th, 1995, a best and worst dressed issue. Just a few of the people on the cover, Oprah Winfrey, Elizabeth Hurley, Jodie Foster, and Fran Drescher. I would have you guess who was best and who was worst, but honestly, you'd never get it right. And later, we're actually going to get to speak to someone who was featured in this issue. And we're not going to tell you whether she was the best or worst dressed person, but we will be speaking to Margaret Cho. And she's got a lot to say about this topic and a whole lot of other stuff, too. It's not really a critique of the star. It's a critique of the moment. I love Margaret and I loved her on Fashion Police. Same. I mean, for sure. My God. Anyway, I'm Jason Cheeler, Deputy West Coast Editor at People Magazine. And I'm Andrea Laventhal, Style and Beauty Director at People Magazine. And this is People in the 90s, where each week we dive deep into an issue of People Magazine from the best era ever. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Jason. All right, a little history lesson, a little fashion history lesson. When I say the words, Mr. Blackwell, does that do anything for you? I do know who Mr. Blackwell is, although I'm not familiar with how he started his reign of, I guess, terror over Hollywood. That's fair. And I'm hoping you can fill me in. I would love to. So he died in 2008 at the age of 86. It's fair to say, like, he was a mean old queen, (laughs) or was my headline when I profiled him posthumously when I worked at Entertainment Weekly. He was, and I mean capital T, the original red carpet bitch. His 1998 autobiography, in fact, was titled From Rags to Bitches. Oh, brilliant. I have three copies if you want one. But here's why we're talking about him on this episode. We, we can't talk about best and worst dress lists. We can't talk about fashion police. We can't talk about Joan Rivers or Brad Goreski without talking about Mr. Blackwell because he started it all. How did he just anoint himself the king slash queen, as you say, of red carpet fashion? Because every year for 48 years, 10 a.m. on the second Tuesday of every January, he called a press conference in his home in L.A. Like he came down this curving staircase, like he was all decked out in jewels and satin. And he would say, ladies and gentlemen, members of the media, here are the worst dressed women in Hollywood. And then he would announce the 10 most hideous looks of the previous year. Like he had easels set up and pictures of them. It's so crazy. He would like announce the 10 and then head back upstairs and wait for his gold princess phone to ring. So Mr. Blackwell is, in fact, a totally made up name. His real name was Richard Selzer. Oh, that doesn't have the same jazziness. Mr. Selzer doesn't really work, does it? Dick Selzer. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't help myself. That's fair. He was a former fashion designer. He's a dog walker. And like he made and sold rhinestone toilet seat covers. Well, that's a qualification you need to be a fashion critic, surely. I'm just saying. And he even published positive lists, too. He, he had a list called Fabulous Fashion Independence. He published an annual Academy Awards fashion review. He appeared as himself on Port Charles, the soap opera, it should be noted. But really, all anyone wanted from him was the negative, right? Like his barbed bon mots. So here are some of his, like, people who occurred on his list multiple times. Elizabeth Taylor, five times. Wow. One time she caught, looks like two boys fighting under a mink blanket. <laughs> 
Barbara Streisand, eight times on the list. Yentl's Gone Mental was one of them. That's good. I mean, it feels low-hanging fruit, but I like it. Meryl Streep, she looks like a gypsy abandoned by a caravan. Then he went on to say, from Streep, you could weep. Her beauty of a career cannot be denied, but that beast of a wardrobe is pure mother of the bride. Wow, he was vicious. His number one worst was Madonna. She appeared 11 times on the list. In 1997, he said, let's be blunt. Yesterday's Evita is today's Velveeta. He loved a rhyme. Well, the thing is, Madonna actually loved it. She she was quoted later as saying, I think I always make Mr. Blackwell's worst dress list. It's nice having something you can count on. Well, that in itself is a symbiotic <laughs> relationship, right? He was basically a total fortune teller, right? Like he totally affected the way we view red carpet dressing started in the 90s, which is to say globally, right? Like the way we talk about famous people walking what would become fashion's biggest runway, not to mention the rise of TMZ, the tabloids, Twitter, anonymous commenters. And like basically he said, it was his big defense, his big thesis for everything he did was, he was quoted as saying, I was only saying out loud what was being whispered. It's not my intention to hurt the feelings of these people It's to put down the clothing that they're wearing. It's so true. And something that Joan Rivers had said time and time again, which is it's not personal. So keep in mind, this is just fun. It's going to be a a gentle kind of chiding. So if I say somebody look like a pig, they should take it with love. That said, if you told me right now that you hated my sweatsuit, I'd feel really sad. You know, no one wants to get critiqued and you could say, it's just the sweatsuit, it's not you. But I feel like me and the sweatsuit, we go together. You know what I mean? It's tough. But I think it is tough. And I think it is hard to separate our clothing from from our heart, especially if you take it seriously. And these people are taking it seriously. And so in the 90s, three things happened. The advent of the 24-hour news cycle, like CNN and then E! Entertainment, right? Actors replaced models on magazine covers, which meant, like, you know, celebrities learned the words Dolce & Gabbana. And then Joan and Melissa Rivers picked up where Mr. Blackwell left off. He privately told people that they stole his act. But here's the deal. Joan and Melissa are credited with upending the entire fashion universe and creating a legit job title like celebrity stylist with that one question, who are you wearing? And when they did that, you know, honestly, they were standing on Mr. Blackwell's shoulder pads, right? And in fact, Melissa, when I interviewed her, she said he really did invent all of this. And this, of course, meaning like the red carpet fashion entertainment complex. You know, when someone comes up at a party and gives you the finger and it's, a, it's A-lister. An A-lister, you go, look who's watching. It's great. That means they're watching. That means they're watching. The thing about them is that some of the celebrities, they actually were in on the joke, right? They enjoyed it. Denzel Washington confessed to Melissa and Joan that his entire limo ride on the way to the Oscars, he was worried about what they were going to say about his outfit. Oscar-winning actor Denzel Washington is worried about Joan and Melissa Rivers. Yeah, he's like, I wore the black bow tie. Should I have worn the red? I mean, red is more of a risk and black is safe. And what are they going to say? And that's funny. And Julia Roberts, okay, she went up to Joan once and she said to her on camera, just tell me to my face, what do you think of the dress? Do you dye it? Should I? No, Are you trying to no, give me a subtle no. hint? A good friend of mine, my mentor actually, Leslie Bennett's the Vanity Fair writer, wrote a biography of Joan Rivers after she died. Last Girl Before the Freeway, I strongly recommend it. And there's one paragraph I want to read for you. No one in the mid-1990s foresaw that Joan and Melissa's on-air jokes about celebrities' dresses would inspire a television franchise that gradually evolved into a major new entertainment genre, spawning explosive growth in the corollary industries that serviced it. They created an entire industry. I'm totally nodding my head because this is why I have a job, people. Yeah. You know, I used to joke, oh, you know, the Academy Awards is is my Super Bowl. But it really is. I loved sitting on my couch 
you know, watching them do the awards and how like funny and spontaneous and getting the stars to kind of loosen up and talk about what they were wearing and sometimes have a little bit of sense of humor about themselves. And Joan and Melissa, mostly Joan, often said exactly what we were thinking. We were told as viewers, these are the tastemakers. If she's wearing that dress, it must be an important piece of fashion that's gorgeous and perfect. But at home, we're like, I think that's hideous. Do you think that's hideous? And there's Joan being like, that's hideous. So we felt like we had a, a representative on the carpet. We had us. We we had somebody who was going to be like, I don't get it. What the hell are you wearing? Oh, you did. Like when the, Melissa told me, she said, it's all about the viewer. We're here to say what the viewer was thinking. Like they gave us that. And it turns out to be huge. People went crazy for it. You know, you had the whole pre-show that everybody wanted to watch it. Then all the subsequent fashion pieces and the roundups. And, you know, we do all this at People. I do a red carpet recap after every major red carpet. It's a huge business. And we love, love, love to hate. I hate to say that, but we love to hate. It's fun. I mean, Joan Rivers, like, if, if you ever saw her stand up, it was like watching a baby with a hand grenade, right? <laughs> like, it was like so cute. And like, you just never knew it was going to happen. You want brutal honesty? You think you can handle the truth? Okay, Jason, back in 1995, okay, the best and worst dressed issue was freaking vicious. Fun fact, what we now call the style issue was formerly best and worst dressed. And when I started at People about 10 years ago, they were still calling it best and worst dressed. It wasn't until I was in charge of print and I said, I don't think we can call it that anymore because things were changing. And we'll get to that later. I don't want to talk about how polite things are now. I want to talk about how bitchy things were then. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm going to just read you what we would call now the frontis of our best and worst dressed issue. The frontis is the opening page. Yes. Thank you. The opener. What's that? You haven't heard? Well, the secret's out. Celebrities this past year did a pretty good job of getting into the fashion swirl. They sailed along on smooth waves of Giorgio Armani and Calvin Klein and looked good stepping out on their own. Oh, some of them snagged their zippers on a tacky trend. Would we have any fun if they didn't? Bare too much or not enough or overdid it on the piercing and the tattoos. But hey, that's entertainment. I mean, so I want to tell you the 10 best dressed from 1995. Well, to be fair, we're going to start with the best. Okay. Oprah Winfrey. Did we use her last name, by the way? Yes. At some point we dropped the last name. Um, Cindy Crawford, please. That's a giveaway, right? Cindy was pretty chic in the 90s, I have to say. George Clooney. Um, Marsha Clark. (gasps) Oh, this is, but to to be clear for the listener, this is Marsha Clark circa Melrose. This is Marsha Clark, the lead prosecutor in the OJ trial. Oh, my God. That's more, I'm conflating Marsha Clark and Marsha Cross. Wait, Marsha Clark from the OJ trial? I swear to God, Chris, if you cut that, I will quit the show. <laughs> that was one of my favorite moments is Jason thinking Marsha Clark is Marsha Cross. I'm <laughs> Dying. That, I'm just surprised it wasn't me. I'm still thinking that you're talking about like Dr. Kimberly Shaw being on the cover as like best dressed, but you're talking about like an OJ trial. We like bombed the list. It was like all <laughs> celebrities. And then we're like, Marsha Clark. And we say, hear ye, hear ye. The verdict is in. OJ lead prosecutor Clark looks poised at the podium. That had to be a prank. <laughs> like, was she wearing Prada? Working on a civil servant's salary, she shed her prim blouses and school marm outfits for more relaxed lines 
lines and colorful combinations. Oh my God, they were trolling us. Come on, that wasn't really Marsha Clark. RuPaul was one of the judges of the best and worst issue. RuPaul would like to see this legal eagle in more tailored suits and fitted skirts. (laughs) I'm with Ru. And then we get to we're stressed. And I'm just going to breeze through. Breeze? Why? No way. I'm kidding. I wanted to just see where you were going to react. Okay. Demi Moore. Oh, I thought Demi Moore's style was amazing in the 90s. Yeah, we found it to be inconsistent. But the bike shorts at the Oscars, was that 90s or 80s? 89. Uh, we it can't talk cost. about it. Never mind. Forboten. Drew Barrymore. Poor thing. She was everything in the 90s. Remember the guest ads? Linda Dano says, she is very pretty, but she wants to make sure you don't know it. Linda. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down. Tony Curtis seems like an easy target. A mean. Yeah, he's like 70. And so what if he wants to wear sandals and a little hat? Um, Fran Drescher, <gasps> which I take issue with because she wore a lot of awesome, like Todd Oldham, oh. Isaac Mizrahi, right? Oh, she's a total champion of American designers. Oh, our girl Tori Spelling. What's wrong? What, what says, did she do wrong? She makes big bucks starring in TV's Tonya zip code, and her daddy's got buckets of bucks at home. So what's with the cutesy wardrobe? I mean, that's a little... That's... We were savage, Nicolas Cage. I mean, I mean all right. Yeah. And uh, Melissa Etheridge. <laughs> what do we say about poor Melissa Etheridge? She was kind of a badass. She's doing the rock and roll sloppy look, and she obviously doesn't care what anyone thinks, says Melrose Place designer Denise Wingate. <laughs> Another judge. <laughs> well, see, that's and, and now we're back to Marsha Cross. Right. It all okay. comes yeah. full circle. So, well, here is my. Are you ready for my big thought? Can I give a big thought? Give a big thought in creating this entire fashion entertainment complex, right? That we can lay at the feet of Joan Rivers. In creating it, she also was its undoing in pointing out the bad, in having fun with it, in pressuring people. I mean, like, let's just say it. She bullied people at times in really pointing out the missteps. Now, there are no mistakes. There is no bravery. No one picks out their own clothes because there's too much at stake. Everything is so high stakes for the red carpet now because there's money to be had. There's ratings to be had. And so now it's just so safe. And I'll just say it like for me, it's over. And this, of course, meaning like the red carpet fashion entertainment complex, you know, like a good red carpet appearance can mean like magazine covers and cosmetic ads and movie roles and a lot of money. And then like someone like Anne Hathaway rumored like got $750,000 for wearing just a necklace to the Oscars. Remember that? Well, I also think, Jason, that part of what happened is social media, particularly Twitter. So when I started at People, again, about 10 years ago, Twitter was really gaining traction as a second screen experience for an award show. So basically you would watch the red carpet on E!, but also on Twitter, toggling back and forth to see what other people, either your friends, people you followed in fashion industry, comedians, just random couch critics saying about these dresses as they arrived. I was one of those people, even though I worked for people, I was allowed 10 years ago to probably say some snarkier things than I would ever say now. But again, as the tide started to turn and the red carpet became a place to make political, social statements, there was the Me Too movement where everyone wore all black and solidarity for it. Like it's not a sport anymore where you can be nasty and critical. You can do it if you're like a Twitter anonymous egg, but you can't do it as a critic at people. Everybody is a winner, just like my son's preschool. Everyone gets a trophy. It's like if you arrive at the red carpet, 
you win. Well, needless to say, we did not feel that way in 1995. Um, Absolutely not. And I'm really excited because we're actually going to get to speak to someone from the best and worst dressed issue, Miss Margaret Cho. I'm also really excited that she was not on the worst dress list because that would have been supremely awkward. I think Margaret probably enjoyed being on the worst dress, but we're sure she was on the best dress. She wasn't on the best dress. She was in a little feature on fashion copycats because she wore the same outfit as Tori Spelling. It was an adorable Cynthia Rowley with cherries on it. Anyway, I love Margaret. She first gained fame as a stand-up comedian in the early 90s and then got her own sitcom on ABC in 1994 called All-American Girl. It was the first sitcom to feature an all-Asian cast, which was a big deal then and is kind of still a big deal now. But of course, we would be remiss if we didn't ask her about her mentor, Joan Rivers, and her time as a commentator and frequent co-host on Fashion Police. I was obsessed with that show. I loved Margaret on it. She really knows her stuff when it comes to fashion. I mean, she has lived with a capital L. I mean, do you know she was a phone sex operator when she was 15 and later a dominatrix? This woman has stories, Jason. That's really uncomfortable. And here she is, (laughs) Margaret Cho. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. And we're just so grateful. Oh, thank you. First of all, when you think of your life in the 90s, what is the first thing you think of? Um, I think about CK1, like the smell. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of ubiquitous. The idea of um, feminism and queerness and the riot girls and grunge, all of that was really embraced. But at the same time, it was really important to be thin. Like even though you were in the midst of this revolution, you still didn't have body positivity. So there was a a lot to sort of left to be desired for like 90s radicalism, but it's really um, kind of where things started to get a little bit better. While researching you for the podcast, I read and listened to a lot of you talking about your body image in the 90s and today. And I remember growing up in the 90s and it was either you were one of the statuesque supermodels, like a Cindy, a Linda, a Christie, or you were Kate Moss. So it was like very Mm -hmm. much on trend. And I just wanted to know what kicked it off for you, your that you thought you had to lose all this weight. What triggered you? Did somebody say something? Was it just always part of you? Oh, it was television. I mean, it was all television. It was really, you know, working on All American Girl, it was that you have to fit into these looks of the time. And, you know, we were in the same era as friends. And all, all of those women were just like, you know, impossibly beautiful and quirky, but you can't be quirky unless you're super thin. So it was like, if you like oh, want to be quirky, you got to be thin. And it was like a weird, it was ti- like the timing of it was in the nineties. We did have feminists. We did have characters that were really like female driven char- character dramas and yeah, TV shows, but they were all super thin. I mean, hmm. and it was just impossible to reconcile that with my own body, my own dissatisfaction with it. Now I look back and I'm really sad because I missed out on my youth and feeling young and feeling like a beautiful girl. I never felt that. And I'm really, I I, I mourn a lot for that young person who never got to enjoy that. What did the diet culture back then look like? Because now I feel like it's all (sighs) hidden behind wellness. Oh yeah, yeah. But no, then it was like, 
we had to eat a lot of carbs. <laughs> it was so weird. It was like no fat. Yeah. Snack wells, right? Entomins and snack wells. You couldn't buy them at the store because they would be sold out. And, uh, oh my God, there's like a waiting list for snack wells. Yeah. Wow. Chips. Oh, I did some wow mm-hmm. chips. Those are, those are, they would give you mm-hmm. diarrhea and there, but there was like, yeah, Olestra and Olean and fat was the problem, not carbohydrates. So you would eat like a lot of carbo load, mm-hmm. like so weird. <laughs> so fat free. Can we talk about Joan Rivers for a second? Yes, yes. So she, you said she served as your mentor for a little bit. I would love just to hear about your your relationship with with Joan. I met her in the '90s, and we we had a dinner, and it was some award thing, and she I was winning an award, and she wanted to present it to me, and we hung out, and uh, she just launched her jewelry line for QVC, and she offered me all this jewelry, and I said, oh, well, I don't wear jewelry, and then she turned her back to me and didn't speak to me for two years. <laughs> And then she came to terms with it. We just started, she came to a show and we just started hanging out. You know, every time I asked you to do anything, she was right there for me. Everything I needed, whether it was advice or comfort or um, just to laugh or just to pay. She had a lot of money. She would pay for things, <laughs> which is, but she was also cheap. So that was like a weird... <laughs> you said you would watch her doing stand-up and you felt like she had friends. Yes. I would love to hear because that's such a powerful thing to think about. When when she would say, uh, can we talk? And everybody would, yes, because that was like her catchphrase. Like, can we talk? Like, let's get real. Like, let's just break it down. That to me was so intimate, but it was with thousands and thousands of people. And she was so, she was one person that I would go see and I would be embarrassed because it was so dirty that I couldn't believe it. And I would be shocked. I would be shocked. And that's hard to shock me. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, it's very incredible for an artist to do that. And she was doing that in her 70s. What was your experience like on Fashion Police, which was like the last time we really got a good dose of Joan. She would get there at like four in the morning. We all got there at like four in the morning. It's like a really weird show because you would have to, you would have to cover the award show the night yes. before. So you would write after the show and then you would kind of go right to the studio. So we would get in at like four in the morning and she would already be there. And um, sometimes what, what she would do is she would take her, her giant Starbucks cup and then empty it and fill it with Chardonnay and just drink her Chardonnay out of her Starbucks cup, which I thought was genius. I'm dying. This is the most important news I've gotten in a long time. <laughs> So fabulous. And then um, after the show, we would just talk about how like she was part of British Hollywood. So because Edgar Edgar Hurley Mm -hmm. husband was British Mm. and um, he's a producer. And so they would have Olivier over for dinner, Lawrence Olivier and Steph. And so she had all of the old like Vincent Vincent Price. All of the old stars would go over to her house and she would host these parties that would just get crazy but I think, um, you know, those are my favorite times. It's just she loved doing fashion police. And so she was like really excited about it because I think she was like kind of really influential in social media because it made the bridge between show business and real people like possible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because she was like from the audience perspective, yes. like I'm out here. We're talking about them. It's really, I think it's really like, that's her, that's what I mean. She had friends. It really bothers me as somebody who works in fashion. I'm the style and beauty director at People. And we don't do worse dressed anymore. We don't really do anything negative. And I think obviously there's a lot of value in that. But I miss 
what Joan did and what you did. I miss making people laugh. I know it was at someone's expense, but like some outfits are bad. But it's funny though, because it's just an outfit. It's not like a reflection on the person or even their style. It's more like, let's talk about the moment and the magic of that moment. And sometimes it's just really to be in awe of the beauty that stylists can create. Stylists, makeup, hair, all of the styles of the moment we're um, experiencing right then. So it's not really a critique of the star. It's really a critique of the moment. And I think that is really missing from uh, fashion. You know, like, I think it comes down to Juliana Rancic talking about Zendaya. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. That's when Juliana yeah. Rancic mentioned Zendaya's dreadlocks, the 2015 Oscars on an episode of Fashion Police, right? Like yes. She said that she probably, quote, smells like patchouli oil and weed. It was like a moment. It changed. It, it, it was a watershed moment in terms of just a simple red carpet coverage, right? Yeah, because now we had to really look at what we're saying about the person. And so then I think we changed the way that we did our reporting around fashion to have an, a moment where saying this is actually somebody's you know personality that you're judging as opposed to their outfit or you know it's hard to justify quote unquote roasting mm. but roasting is you have to be a lot more thoughtful and to me fashion is just funny and it's fun, but it can be also very, people can be very hurt by it, too. Yeah. Well, you you have such a history there. It's also interesting that Joan Rivers almost undid the entire fashion police thing because no one cared about labels before she started asking it. And mm-hmm. so an entire industry of stylists in red carpet monetization is because of Joan Rivers. And, and because right. of that, there are no more accidents. Like, I miss Laura Flynn Boyle dressed up like a ballerina or Bjork laying an egg at the Oscars. Like, I miss that bravery, right? I'm just going to say it. I think we should ban stylists. That, that's I'm after. Like I think we should just ban stylists, and everyone picks out their own clothes. Like, that's da- those are some dangerous words. I don't know if you want. But you know what? I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm going to get canceled. I'm get like if the gay mafia is going to come after me. I'm, I'm telling you, that's that's what's going to happen. And so October 1994 is when your sitcom premiered. Mm-hmm. And you know, recently we've had Fresh Off the Boat, which honestly stands on your shoulders. 20 years later, Minari at the Oscars, Crazy Rich Asians, just it was a blockbuster. But in October 1994, what was your life? like that that week that the show hit the air? It was very busy. I mean, I think that there was a different kind of show business because, you know, we didn't have the internet. So the, the promotion schedule was very different. There was a lot of, uh, I think I did Regis and Kathy Lee. I did like nighttime talk shows. I was able to do stand-up comedy on talk shows. So I did Arsenio Hall. Like I was actually living not far from the studio and I was kind of on call. So anytime they would have a guest like run over production, like people were like shooting and they couldn't make it. I would kind of come in as a fill-in guest. And so I appeared on that show more than 10 times doing comedy, just the last minute. So there was a lot of different kinds of things you were doing as um, a comedian, as an entertainer, you know, it was, it was exciting. So it was like a lot of work in a different way. Was it hard to convince people Mm -hmm. that your show, All American Girl, was worth making and that people would watch it? Or was there a lot of excitement around it from the get-go? There was a lot of excitement around it, but at the same time, there was this idea that this was a show just specifically for Asian and Asian American families, that this was an audience that they were trying to see. But it's never, we don't watch television to reconfirm uh, our own community. I mean, we do in a sense, but we also can watch other, like I have, I watch white people all the time. 
<laughs> I'm like, I watch The Real Housewives and I don't relate at all. I know. That's why we watch television. We want to hear these stories. I know. I watch 90 Day Fiance. I've never been um, had up to apply for a K-1 visa. But I think that it's really... I'm obsessed with 90 Day Fiance. By the way. Everyone is. Everyone. It was more about stand-up comedians were getting sitcoms. And it was almost like a factory. So you had Seinfeld and then you had Tim Allen and you had Roseanne and then you had, you know, these very successful shows. Everybody Loves Raymond is from that era of like, Mm. let's develop shows around a comedian. You have a built in audience and you have a built in storyline, basically. Like, let's just figure out what this is. And so at that point, if you were different, that was really valued because your uh, otherness was a currency in that particular market. So I was able to kind of move along in that way. It wasn't necessarily that they were trying to create an Asian American television show. It was just that I was the most different comedian at the time to create a sitcom around. What did your parents think about the success of the show? What their their experience as as this show went went on the air was was what you think? They were so excited. I mean, they were really thrilled. I think that this kind of bought them a lot of like legitimacy amongst their like friends whose kids went to Harvard and Yale and, you know, but my daughter's on mm-hmm. television. So, you know, it's a, it's a little bit more of a status, but it was a, uh, it was really exciting because they didn't understand what I was trying to do. Um, I mean, I started so young that they couldn't really contain my enthusiasm around stand-up comedy. I started when I was a teenager. So they were mm-hmm. very like, we don't understand what this is, but fortunately I was successful enough right away that I didn't have to justify it to them. But when I was starting, it, I had to look at the historical context of my appearance onto American television happened right after the LA riots. So you had Koreans, suddenly they were on their rooftops with shotguns. Mm, it was Rodney King, right? Mm-hmm. And then the next thing is like me, a very filthy nightclub comedian. So you have a very patriarchal culture, which is Korean culture. You have a very um, conservative culture also. So not only was I a woman, I was queer, I was filthy, and I was not college educated. I was not any of the values that sort of Korean culture, Korean American culture was built on then. So I had a backlash, but then all those people died. A lot of salt in our food. So that's kind of like what (laughs) I'm the elder now, and I really embrace all of the younger comedians and um, they look to me as the first Asian American, first Korean American they saw on television. And I'm very proud of that. Who do you think is doing a good job right now? Who make who makes you laugh, I guess? I love Bowen Yang. I think he is mm. amazing um, on Saturday mm-hmm. Night Live. He's just awesome. And, and, you know, that is a tough job. I think if anybody can take on the culture of an institution like that and really make it his own. He's really done it. And Mm. um, so I think that's really incredible. Aquafina is another really amazing Ali Wong. And I love Robin Tran is probably my favorite comedian right now. She's an amazingly funny TikTok, Insta stand-up comedian. And um, she's Vietnamese American. She's trans. She's really just so awesome. So I, I think that there's just a lot of great people. Um, Face Off was one of the best movies of the 90s. Can you just tell us a little bit about that experience? Um, I would eat Beef Wellington and Boysenberry Pie in John Travolta's trailer 
And so I, they had to sew a panel in the back of my costume because the, the movie happens over the period of a few days. So you had to wear the same thing for a year because those are big stunts they had to make. So they, the movie took about a year to make. And so they had to sew like an elastic panel about three inches wide in the back of my suit to make it fit. They were so mad at me. But um, one time I saw John eat an entire boysenberry pie. It was boysenberry, too. It wasn't like blueberry or like... That's very specific, boysenberry. Boysenberry. A whole pie without slices. He just ate the pie with a fork. That is my dream. <laughs> Great. Wow. I mean, I, 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 I love the bravery. I love the, the um, dedication. But the, 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 he's like a king. Right, he's totally. Like the, own, the closest thing to a king I've ever uh, been around, you know? And like a, a pie in one sitting. Yeah, yeah. Because he's a king, Jason. Oh, That's what kings do. A nine-inch <laughs> boysenberry pie. Freshly baked. I'm like, challenge accepted, Margaret. Okay, fine. I'll do it. Yes. Um, so I also great. love Margaret's photographic yeah. memory with that. I mean, we're talking nine inches. It's like, yeah, boys a nine-inch pie. pie. Because it's just, it, it's a whole pie. No cream or ice cream or any of that bullshit. Straight just up. Cream. No, 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 no. Yeah, straight up. So yeah. we have a little pop culture game for you. Okay. All you have to do is pick this or that. Okay. Okay. So we'll start with Spice Girls or TLC? TLC. Left Eye Forever. Yes. Fabio or Rico Suave? Rico Suave. Although I did like when Fabio was on the roller coaster. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So She's All That or 10 Things I Hate About You? She's All That. You like a makeover moment? I do. I think it's fun. Um, Bob Ross or Bob Saget? (laughs) Bob Saget. Are you friends with Bob Saget? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love I love Boss. Um so this is like ultimate Johnny and Winona or Johnny and Kate Moss. Winona forever. Yeah. Um Margaret Cho, we are so grateful. So grateful. It means so much to us personally. So thank you so much and you're such a good this sport. This is awesome. Thank you. Bye. Well, thank you so much to Margaret Cho. I mean, I could not love her more. I really wonder if she still has that cherry printed uh, Cynthia Rowley dress. I didn't ask her, but if she does, maybe she'll let me borrow it. Oh, well, just like, let's let's reach out. Let's get her back on and talk about it. We should do a follow-up episode just dedicated to the cherry dress. I'm sure she'd be very into that. Hey, everyone. I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce season five of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Okay, so when we last left off on Chasing Fabio, we were growing a little concerned that perhaps you are not just being ghosted by Donna May and Team Fabio, but perhaps you were also being catfished. (laughs) Where are we at? I mean, it was both a shocking and fairly demoralizing turn of events. However, I'm not sure that I'm being catfished. I did find Fabio's attorney 
And this is a, a gentleman who lives in Marina Del Rey named Eric. And I let him know because I'm working on a new podcast for People Magazine called People in the 90s, focusing only on major 90s icons. Major. And we, major, and we have to have Fabio that I'm happy to jump on the phone to discuss further. I got a response. Oh, thank God. Hi, Jason. I am the right person. Unfortunately, Fabio is not available. Regards. Regards. That's so cold. <laughs> Regards? What do you mean he's not available? What do you think he's doing? I remain undeterred. I'm wrote back and said, we will make it like the easiest thing in the world. We'll take him at any point. Mm -hmm. Anywhere. In the next three months. Like anywhere, anytime, however he wants to do it, we're down. Jason, this would be the time to come clean and admit that you offered him a cover. (laughs) (laughs) You offered him a cover and we're going to have to tell our bosses that you sold your soul and his to get... Fabio on the show. And you know what? I would do the same if I were you. Like, is this a bad time to let editor-in-chief Dan Wakeford know that we've offered Fabio a cover? <laughs> Maybe later. <laughs> so I await Mr. Eric of Marina Del Rey's response, and we'll see what happens on the next episode. Just do me a favor in the meantime, Jason. Can you copy me on the email you sent to Dan telling him what you've promised? <laughs> yes, and he will CC you on your fired. Back to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, Andrea, one last thing. Along the lines of our best and worst dressed issue from 1995, let's talk about the best yet worst movie of the 90s. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. Showgirls. Nice dress. Thanks. It's a Versace. It's Versace. (laughs) What? Oh, Showgirls. Classic. Well, on page 244 of this issue, September 18th, 1995, in a little item called Running From Cover, we spotlight one Elizabeth Berkeley. We knew her from Saved by the Bell. I'm so excited. I know they're going to play the clip. I know, but I just had to say it. I know if, if we can afford it. Anyway, she has this quote in about you know being scared to go nude for it, and that at one point she decided to quote, "Time to drop all of our robes together." She said to all the showgirls, "It was like it's NC seventeen. You would have to sneak into the theater to see it. It was it was it was bad. It was bad. It was it was wonderfully bad. And if it tells you anything, the writer of the movie also wrote Basic Instinct. Oh, I mean, like let's go back. Elizabeth Berkeley, Kyle McLaughlin, who we knew from Twin Peaks and his relationship with Linda Evangelista, Gina Gershon, who was in Cocktail. I mean, this little movie about Nomi Malone, who like hitchhikes to Vegas to hoping to make it as a showgirl. I mean, it tanked and bombed so wonderfully at the box office and then later became like a camp classic cult hit along the lines of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, right? Like people would watch the movie theater and act along with it. It became like a total camp classic. <sighs> Jason, I, I I think it's time to come clean. I know I said in an earlier episode that Showgirls was my favorite movie. Have you even seen Showgirls? Jason, I haven't. Okay. <gasps> it was NC-17, Jason. It wasn't even R. You've been masquerading? Lying. As a Showgirls fan this entire time? <laughs> because I think I would be. This is this movie was made for me. It was just that I wasn't allowed to see it legally. And then so much time passed and the opportunity never presented itself. And then it gets weird as an adult to say to your significant other, you know what I want to watch tonight? Showgirls. Okay? Then it's I, weird. I actually haven't been this angry in a long time. I'm angry too. I'm angry at myself. <laughs> I'm angry at my parents. I promise you I'm going to watch it. All I want to tell you is that get this. Like Elizabeth Berkley, she didn't do much after Showgirls. But do you know who was considered for the part of Naomi Malone instead of Elizabeth Berkeley? Tell me. Pam Anderson, Angelina Jolie, Denise Richards, 
Charlize Theron. Wow. And Jenny McCarthy. I love that lineup. It would have been a totally different movie, I say, as someone who's never seen it. <laughs> if Charlize was the lead, I mean, she would have won an Oscar instead of a Razzie. That is so 90s. Well, thanks again to Margaret Cho for being our guest today. Jason, you know what was so amazing about this particular episode? Tell me. That the two of us, longtime style experts with more opinions than we know what to do with. And shoes. That's right. And shoes are sitting here in truly the best, worst fashion ever. I (laughs) am wearing a pair of Gap joggers that I bought right after I had my first child and continue to wear with a Target t-shirt. And you, my friends, are wearing, please tell the listeners. I am wearing a free hoodie that Jojo Siwa's mom gave me after I interviewed her at their home in Tarzana. With zero irony, people. He loves the sweatshirt. (laughs) I'm a fan. I love Jojo. Hey, Jojo. So fashion critics, we're just as poorly dressed sometimes as as the rest of you. People in the 90s is hosted by me, Jason Sheeler, and Andrea Laventhal. It's produced by Jason Sheeler and Chris Jacobs. Executive produced by Kim Ritberg and David Flumenbaum. Edited by Chris Jacobs. Mastered by Erica Wong. And with production support by Elisa Sessler at People, Persia Verlin, Matt Sav, and Rachel King at Pod People. I'm Andrea Laventhal. Thank you for listening. And I'm Jason Sheeler. <laughs> 